Hi, I'm Phil Yields, and thanks for tuning into this episode of the Youth in Education podcast, where we explore developments in education, research, and policy that affect young people. This podcast is brought to you by the Centre for Education and Youth. The Centre for Education and Youth believes society should ensure all children and young people receive the support they need to make a fulfilling transition to adulthood. Find us at cfey.org. Hi there and welcome to the Youth and Education podcast. Today we're going to be doing another research roundup with our Director of Research, Dr Sam Bars. Welcome to the show, Sam. Thanks, Phil. How are you doing? Yeah, great, thanks. This is funny because the last time we spoke on the podcast you were uh, interviewing me for your final research roundup, I think. Uh, can you tell yeah, us... Yeah, it was like a mirror image. Can you tell us a bit about what you're going to be talking to us about today? Yeah, sure. I've been doing a lot of thinking about area-based inequalities recently, primarily because we've been putting together an edited book as the Centre for Education and Youth recently, which will be coming out hopefully a little bit later this year. And my chapter for that book was all about a kind of a review of where we're at in education policy in terms of area-based inequalities. And it's something that I've always done quite a lot of writing about. Most of my academic stuff has been in that area. I wanted to spend a bit of time discussing what's in that chapter that I've just written alongside two other recent pieces that have come out this year one from the Social Mobility Commission, another, an article in the Journal of Youth Studies, both looking at neighbourhood inequality from various different aspects. Fantastic. Well, let's get straight into it. Can you tell us a bit about your chapter in this upcoming book? Yeah, sure. The book itself is called Young People on the Margins, and each chapter of the book looks at either a different marginalised group of young people in the youth and education sector and in the system, or a kind of aspect of disadvantage that either is that tends to be overlooked or that we think needs to be kind of spoken about in different ways or renewed. So my chapter is about area-based inequalities and really I suppose the springboard for it is that we in England at the moment we have this policy of opportunity areas so they were established a few years ago now and they kind of hark back to Theresa May's premiership and kind of several (laughs) as always seems to be the case that kind of harks back several different education secretaries um but we kind of in, in, the, in England at the moment, essentially, we've got a set of, I think it's 12 opportunity areas around the country that we have decided need particular priority attention in terms of raising young people's outcomes in a range of ways. An area based approach to education policymaking is in vogue at the moment. And I suppose what I wanted to do in this chapter is say that it's actually that's nothing new. That's not a bad thing, but I think sometimes we forget the kind of historical context of policy making, and it can be useful primarily because we can learn lessons from what hasn't worked before. And I don't think we always do that. We go in saying, "Oh, we've got this new area of area-based policy making. We're going to target these areas, and within years we will have cracked the nut." But we probably won't have done because it didn't work in the past, and I don't think it'll work this time either, even if we do make some progress. And I basically spend some time in the chapter discussing how we might be able to do things a bit better if we have a slightly different discussion about the types of area where young people don't fare very well. And I suppose the main element of my argument basically hangs around this point that we talk quite a lot about, either in kind of vague shorthands like the inner city or disadvantaged areas, or we use data and we talk a bit more specifically about tends to be deprived areas, so areas that rank highly on the index of multiple deprivation, which is quite a popular measure in various areas of policymaking of measuring deprivation in the round. That's not a bad way to begin to look at areas where young people maybe don't do very well, but actually there's lots of deprived areas where on average young people do fine. And I think there's actually been 
research indicating for several years now that it's not deprived areas where we need to focus our attention. It's particular types of area on the edges of cities, on the edges of small towns, medium-sized towns along the coast that tend to have been overlooked in education policy so far and I kind of make the case for that. Exactly like the places you and I both live. Tell us a bit about how you're distinguishing types of area from these classifications that we've used today. Yeah, and no, that's a good question. And it's kind of it's kind of technical, but you can also think about it in a quite a kind of common sense way, really. So lots of research and lots of policy tends to it doesn't actually really distinguish between different types of area. What we tend to do is say that there are really deprived areas and there are areas that aren't very deprived. And then in between there's a kind of a gradual slide between the two. So there's literally a ranking. At the smallest neighborhood level, there's something like thirty-two thousand really small areas in the country. Mm-hmm. Each of them can be given given a deprivation score and that's on various things like health outcomes, education outcomes, uh, transport environments. So it's a really, it's a really a detailed way of measuring deprivation quite holistically. But essentially an area is given a score mm. and each of those 32,000 areas can be placed on a rank from, from 1 to 32,000. What that doesn't give us is any real sense of areas that might be similar. And I know that's quite a a vague concept but actually when we talk about area and neighborhood level stuff i think a lot of the stuff that really counts is how an area actually feels for the people who live in it there's quite a lot of kind of sociology and human geography bound up in those sorts of thoughts but i think ultimately if you want to make good policy and get under the hood of why kids from certain neighborhoods don't seem to do very well or seem to be held back we need something a bit more nuance that actually says well these two areas they're not similarly deprived but they're really similar in other ways or they might have very different deprivation scores but they both got a real spike in terms of their health deprivation or they've both got like a really elderly population and that has a particular effect on the labor market for instance but they're not very deprived areas but actually if you look at how young people do they might not do very well i mean a good example probably more succinct example is that a really large proportion of the most deprived parts of the country are in London, um, many of them in kind of inner London. And as we all know, kind of relatively well now, we're all quite well versed in the fact that um, educational outcomes in London are pretty good on average. There are really quite significant cases in England and the UK more broadly, where deprivation isn't necessarily the, the best way of meaningfully capturing where outcomes are poor for young people. Mm-hmm. So area types, it goes beyond this kind of sliding quantitative scale of well, my area is more deprived than yours, to we live in the same kind of type of area. They might not be geographically kind of next to each other. They might feel different in certain ways, but we can use census data and techniques like cluster analysis to actually group areas together and say that they belong to types. So there are a typology-based approach would say, for instance, that deprived areas on the edge of medium-sized towns are a different type of area to similarly deprived areas on the edges of big cities or in the center of big cities and i think that's something more meaningful and statistical analysis actually shows that as a predictor of outcomes it's a slightly more promising approach to talking about area effects it's got more explanatory power Mm. than deprivation Mm. so are you proposing not so much a whole new system of classification but more using other sources of data to distinguish between areas other than simply the imd 
or you yeah, exactly. a new system of classification. I'm a big fan of trying to use what we've already got, essentially, that, and this will be updated with the next census, which will be happening really soon. We already have the, the output area classification, and we've also got kind of the Office for National Statistics own area classifications, and these are all freely available for researchers, but, you know, policymakers are, are increasingly using them. I'm, the index of multiple deprivation is a really, really useful tool, and I think it's great that it's used so much and that many people know what it is and what it means. But there's been far less use of area types. I mean, you look at things like advertising and marketing, and they've been using area typologies for decades now because they are really powerful tools, essentially for making money. So, but if they're, they're powerful tools for explaining social processes, that's why they use them, because they help them to make money and target people that would also make them really useful tools in social policy, but just for different ends. So what kind of problems are you suggesting would be better served by comparing areas in terms of types rather than simply along well, along socioeconomic lines? Are we talking about like school attainment or unemployment? Yeah, that's, that's a good one. I mean, I, I suppose actually in my chapter, I have picked the kind of outcomes that most people tend to gravitate to when they're talking about youth outcomes. So my own research suggested that area type is a really, really strong predictor of aspirations, because I was particularly interested in aspirations when I did my PhD about a decade ago. But it's, it is also really strongly linked to educational outcomes. So the scores at the end of age of 16 for instance and it's a stronger predictor of those things than than imd on its own there's not a great deal in it and actually i think it's probably important to say that of all the things that we know are strong predictors or determinants of how young people do there's a limited space for their area or their neighborhood it still comes down more to things like their parents occupational background um gender ethnicity mm-hmm. those individual level features are basically the the ones that really count. But there is something interesting in terms of areas and part of the reason it plays less of a role than explaining how young people do at the end of school is just because we're not very good at at measuring neighbourhood and area. But if you speak to young people, and I guess this is probably the, the second main point in my chapter and most of my research is that there's an important point to be made, which we've just discussed about how we measure areas or talk about neighbourhoods in data. But there's also a lot more to be said, I think, about how young people themselves talk about the areas they live in. So rather than just describing the places they live in, allowing them to describe them and allowing them to say, well, so I live in this kind of place and it's like this and it's like that. And my life as a result has been like this and therefore... I think it's helped me back in these ways at school or it gives me these sorts of opportunities and you, you can't capture that stuff in data you have to have conversations to to tap into that and when you start to have those conversations you also get a far more nuanced picture of the kind of outcomes that we can talk about so we obsess about GCSE schools for instance or labour market transitions and for good reason because these things really count but young people will also talk about outcomes like their aspirations or whether they think they'll be able to have secure housing or access their friends and family, for instance. Those are really important life outcomes for young people. So I think discussions about area and neighbourhood tend to tap into those more meaningful outcomes too. So what does this look like practically? Are you suggesting uh, doing an analysis like at the, at the output area level and then doing a cluster analysis supported by interviews with people from those localities? Yeah, so um, I mean, in my chapter, I put forward or kind of suggest a few 
practical ramifications for this. I think in, in honesty, talking about area types has some of the same pitfalls of any kind of mass data-based approach to identifying areas or describing areas. And, and one of those is that every place is still an individual place. It has its own features. You know, speak to any school head and they'll say, yeah, sure, I might have the same proportion of kids on free school meals as the one down the road, but we're serving completely different intakes and our, this school is really different and faces different challenges. So, you know, ultimately, the conversation has to stop being about data and start being about individual areas and individual schools and kids in those in those schools to be meaningful. It wouldn't take much to use the area typologies that we already have mm. and the schools and the areas that we, we can assign to those. What I suggest we do just as a starting point with policy in this country at the moment would be to pause the, the chat about deprivation, um, press play on the conversation about area type and we we already have, you know, we've got maps, we've got analysis, we've got data tables, which tell us on average which area types have lower attainment than others. And those maps actually look really quite different to the maps that are based on um, deprivation. There are some areas that are not particularly deprived but where outcomes are, are not so good. And finally, quite an exciting feature, I think, is the, the prospect of collaboration between, for instance, say like school leaders in areas that might not be next door to each other, but they belong to similar area types. They have a similar neighborhood context, you know, cluster analysis would identify that for us. They've probably also got similarly weak outcomes in certain areas. And so I think it opens up the scope for school leaders to have a chat about what's difficult or what they're doing well, even though they might not have come across each other because they're actually serving communities that might be kind of several hundred miles apart, but they might be facing similar contexts. And area types allows that conversation to be more meaningful than deprivation, I think. Excellent stuff. Thanks, Sam. Shall we talk about your second piece, which was moving out to move on, understanding the link between migration, disadvantage and social mobility? This is a report that's really recent, actually, um, still warm, I think, um, from the Social Mobility Commission. They commissioned the research, I think it was the Institute for Employment Studies, which is actually just down the road from me in Brighton, which is nice. They actually did the research and put this piece together. And it's about understanding the link between migration, disadvantage and social mobility. And actually, I was really heartened by this report because, you know, what you're looking at here is a report with the Social Mobility Commission stamp on it. But within the first couple of pages, they're, they're making some, what I think in, in terms of kind of policy language are, are quite bold claims and the right sorts of claims, I think. The main one being that there's, there's a real onus on young people these days in the UK to get out if you want to get on. Mm. So young people from particular types of area, deprived areas on the whole, areas where the labor market's fairly flat or doesn't have a very wide range of opportunities, you need to get out of those places if you want to get on or if you want to go to university or if you want to earn good money. And that we've got quite used to that sort of discourse without being very critical about what that really means for young people. And this report actually starts from the basis of that's really problematic. We can't live in a country like that anymore. We need to build the kind of country where, sure, there are lots of really positive reasons to leave the neighbourhood you grew up in, but lots of young people might not want to, and lots of adults might not want to, but they don't have a choice. They have to if they want to improve their life chances. And it's not okay to live in a country like that and we shouldn't do so that's the the basis of the report and i kind of really applaud that actually mm. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, this is particularly a problem for rural areas, isn't it? The kind of mm. effective aging of the population because young people move out to larger cities where there are more opportunities. I mean, that's even been parodied in things like um, This Country on BBC Three. Right. So does the report make any suggestions about how to start combating this or is this is it is it more an analysis of the current situation? It's an analysis of the current situation, but there are some there are some practical recommendations. It's it's a report that's primarily there to describe the state of the nation as as, as it currently is, and I think that's great. I mean, it goes into a lot of detail and it uncovers some interesting aspects of this trend. So, essentially, people who are more advantaged, and by that we tend to mean people whose parents come from a higher occupational background, so Mm -hmm. professional managerial occupations, they're far more likely to move around. And when they do move, they're actually more likely to move to areas that are similarly advantaged to the one they already come from. And the opposite holds at the other end of the spectrum. So essentially working class kids are less likely to be mobile. And when they are mobile, they're most likely to move to areas that are similarly deprived or where there's a kind of similar proportion of people whose parents come from jobs that aren't professional managerial, low levels of qualification and skills. So they kind of lay out the, those, those broad trends. And I think that one in particular is is important for giving you this sense of like there's a lot of movement going on. We know every year in September, lots of students move around the country to study or get their first job after leaving university. Mm-hmm. Lots of young people between the age of 20 and 30 move in order to you know, start a family or make the second move in, in their career. But actually there's, there's not much equity in those movements. They tend to be flows that reinforce inequality rather than dissolving inequality. I suppose that's probably a, a more pithy way of summing it up. That's that's really interesting because there must be a fair few anomalies mm. around people moving to London or to large cities in general, moving to more deprived areas, but still remaining advantaged whilst living in an area that is generally more deprived. Yeah, that is a really good point because London is London is the kind of centre of gravity of the UK economy. And that means that, yeah, lots of the flows go to London, which is actually kind of quite highly deprived. But in terms of incomes... I guess that's an interesting aspect of the IMD is that you've got large residential areas of London where they rank really highly on IMD, but the wages are actually relatively high in London. Mm. And there are parts of the capital that aren't very deprived at all that mm. generate a large proportion of both the city and the country's GDP. And that's kind of enough enough to offset that. But you're right. It's not like a cast iron link. It's not like this kind of constant escalator. You've, you've got lots of graduates from Oxbridge might have grown up in quite rich, leafy, affluent shire counties. And then the first thing they do when they leave university is move to a far more deprived part of the country, London, but where their income will be probably higher than it would be anywhere else in the country and where there's far more opportunities. So yeah, that's a really interesting point. Yeah, it must kind of create, well, I mean, we know it does create quite a division between uh, incoming well-off people and locals who have uh, lived there for a long time and are not so Mm. well off. I'm thinking of that donut effect that people describe quite a lot, but particularly in in London, and it related quite closely to the idea of gentrification, where residents who've lived in London for quite a while, but maybe haven't benefited from the spoils of the capital's economic Mm. growth, are being forced ever further out and more affluent people are kind of taking up their spaces that Mm -hmm. is certainly a concern so what happens to the people who stay this i think is probably where some of the practical recommendations come in one thing to say and i I remember reading about this actually in i think it was the ft um last year they had a really interesting piece about these sorts of trends essentially you've got parts of the country where they are getting older 
where average qualification levels are getting lower um, and young people essentially are pouring out of those places and they're all going to generally larger cities where the population is oh, every year it gets a little bit younger and every year it actually gets more highly skilled. So it's that classic case of a, a trend beginning and then just reinforcing itself and opening up quite big geographical inequalities. And that that analysis in the FT accords with the analysis in this paper and one really important respect, which is that although life chances are really good in terms of incomes, for instance, when you make those kind of movements, well-being actually seems to really suffer. So well-being in the most affluent parts of London is some of the lowest in the country when you talk to people about their, their general life happiness. And a lot of it, for instance, is to, do, is to do with the real struggle with housing costs, but also the inability to access kind of green spaces or to have a house that has a garden and things like this. So to get back to your question, for young people who who stay and adults who stay too but i guess we're focusing on young people here there's a lot of positives often a lot of the types of area where young people tend to need to get out because there aren't labor market opportunities they're not bad areas in other respects they're actually pretty good places to live you often have really good solid housing stock houses with gardens they're close to their family they grow up with their friends it's familiar there again like i said that the report starts at this point and it kind of it's a theme throughout. There are many, many positives to staying. It's just that there are big downsides because of the way that we arrange our economy geographically in terms of accessing jobs and decent incomes. And it's a shame that that has to be the case because essentially all young people face this pretty horrendous trade-off between wanting to get on in certain respects, but totally uprooting themselves from other things that they really value and want in their lives. I mean, this seems like a pretty intractable problem as long as we continue to will gather in cities. I'm not sure what your thoughts are on this, but um, I mean, we can talk about the rise of flexible work, working, particularly in the wake of COVID, but I don't think we can assume that that's going to be a long-term trend, not significant enough to affect the vast majority of the workforce, especially people who work in, for example, manual jobs. So how do you, how do you see this as ever going to be addressed? That's no, a really good point. I think there's, there's a lot of focus on on, you know, I said remote working decouples your employment from your area of residence, and that has some quite interesting effects. But most people who benefit from that, as you said, are people in generally more kind of more highly paid, um, more highly qualified jobs. You know, you've got whole sectors like retail, hospitality, and other forms of manual work where that's just not even remotely an option to, to work from home or work work remotely. So the equity effects of the rise of home working are fairly questionable even if it does allow a few tens of thousands of people to realize the dream of you know working from home and staying which is which is a really wonderful thing there's a recommendation in this paper that local education providers need to they need to play more of a role in I, I find this quite a difficult concept but essentially kind of creating the sort of labor market that is going to provide local young people with real meaningful opportunities as, you know, whether you look at that through the lens of things like regeneration or planning, working with local authorities when they draw up their kind of spatial planning for the next five or ten years, because that's when local authorities, for instance, say, what kind of businesses do we want to attract or what are we going to do with our brownfield sites? Should we go into depth so that we can invest in becoming a centre of excellence for this? So, so like, I live in Worthing, for instance, and there's work underway at the moment to try and make Worthing more attractive to people with digital skills in the round. But you can kind of see it. So these little things popping up here and there and you, you see these little ripples of impacts. As for big structural change, I think it's really hard and people have been talking about needing to do this for 
for quite a while. There's lots of economic forces that really work against that. One of them is this idea of kind of agglomeration economies and the, the, the it's a pretty horrible term, but the idea is sort of simple, which is that once you've already got a cluster of businesses in a certain area, so you've got like a tech park or something, it attracts more. So like in the West Midlands, you've got Jaguar Land Rover and a lot of engineering. Yeah. Um, because it's kind of good access to motorways. Um, it's in the middle of the country, so it's good for supply chains and things like this. And once you've already got one massive factory and supplier, it makes sense for others to be located nearby too, because there's economies of scale. And before long, you've got whole cities or whole areas that are essentially kind of monopolizing, but it's, that, it's a very efficient way of arranging things. It kind of makes sense, there's a logic and a sense to that, but it just that's just one example of the way in which pretty fundamental ways in which our economy works do work against this idea of like you know a local economy for everyone like wherever you grow up you can access all opportunities and that to be fair that is it is a bit of a pipe dream to imagine a country where you know wherever you grow up everything is on your doorstep it's just not really spatially possible and no economy really works like that but there probably is scope for instance for local you know for universities and local fe providers to be more involved in those discussions with local authorities about like look we've got uh, this course that we run on this is really popular the young people do really well we've got really skilled young people in this area coming out but they don't actually want to leave this area like what can we do to at least create a few more jobs in this sort of stuff and um, it'd be good for the local area it'd be good for good for young people and it's not about locking them to their locality in some cases it might just be about at least giving them the option of staying local for a bit longer if, if that's what they want to do rather than forcing them to to move and uproot themselves from the forms of capital that they've built up locally. Mm. I think that still uh, still remains a rather intractable problem for um, more rural areas where the infrastructure just isn't there you know it's hard to establish yeah. a tech park or even get to a relatively nearby tech park if you don't have a bus service, for example. So why don't you tell us about your third paper? I think that's um, looking at an interesting case, uh, specifically of coastal towns, which we haven't really talked about so much yet, have we? Mm. I, every now and again, I have a little look around for literature on, on coastal towns because going back oh, several years now, everyone starts to get quite interested in them. There was a, there was a little, there was a bit of a flurry of interest in coastal towns as the, the new frontier of you know, real disadvantage and where actually educational outcomes for young people are, are the worst. And a few people started to suggest that actually, you know, forget the inner city, it's coastal towns where things are worst. There's evidence to support that, but it, it never really caught on. And I think for kind of good reason, it's, it's a bit specific. There's lots of different types of place where you know on average young people don't don't do particularly well and it's not just coastal towns but i now live in a coastal town so i have a kind of personal interest in that particular context this this paper's uh, written relatively recently exploring the the coastal context it also provides quite a nice contrast to the social mobility commission report that we've just discussed in that it's a kind of an ethnographic piece it's research relatively small scale very local research but incredibly detailed and rich qualitative research with a group of young people so it gives you a very different perspective on this theme of area-based inequalities so what did what did they find i mean presumably they're looking at like coastal town culture or they mm. they find amongst the young people they talk to there over the years there's been many attempts to try and essentially answer the question of okay if things aren't great in coastal towns why there's a range of different coastal contexts in the uk but you know what is it about coastal towns that means that if you're a young person growing up in one things are difficult you know schools don't do very well 
it's always quite a mixed bag, but some things jumped out to me that it, there seems to be a growing evidence base that kind of the seasonal economy that you often find in coastal towns is a problem. It's, it can be problematic in coastal towns that there's lots of kind of churn in terms of housing. So there's lots of houses of multiple occupancy, things like kind of B&Bs for tourists, but also coastal towns are often places where you find quite a high proportion of homeless people and people with kind of related issues. I think there still needs to be more research into why that's the case. I think some of it is to do with the housing stock that local authorities often use to support those groups. But it seems to be kind of a growing problem in coastal towns, you know, local authorities, for instance, struggling to have the resources to deal with those sorts of social problems. But also that when investment does happen in coastal towns, it's often oriented towards the tourists who come in the summer rather than always being oriented towards the people who live there for the rest of the year and that's a theme that comes out for instance really strongly in the qualitative interviews that the authors did in this paper something else that they find that it really chimes with the with my own research so i spent a lot of time i spent a couple of years talking to a small group of young men in um, just south of manchester so going back about a decade now about what they were doing next and how those ideas for what they wanted to do with their lives were shaped by where they'd grown up. So that was essentially what my PhD was all about. And some really, really similar themes came up in this paper in terms of findings. And I thought that was just interesting, you know, 10 years on, different context, different research, but you do find similarities in findings. One thing they found is that young people they spoke to are often really critical about the places they grow up. You know, they're fully aware of them being a bit of a dump or that people, that's how people describe them and how they often choose to describe them too you know, that they're aware of narratives around them being kind of dead end places. And they know how people describe young people. And actually, they're often, they often feel a fair bit of affinity with those sorts of discourses. But often, sometimes in the same breath, they're really very defensive, very territorial. And they sometimes want to stay despite that. So it can be really difficult, actually, it, sh- it I suppose it just goes to, to prove how simplistic it is to talk about young people either staying or going. That's often how we talk when we think about social mobility and spatial mobility. But those decisions are are very, very rarely simple or easy decisions. And there's some really difficult stuff bound up in there. I mean, anyone who's ever moved house and had to go through that, you you know, moved away from an area they've lived in for a long time has been through that. Those sorts of thoughts of, you know, weighing up what ties you to a place as opposed to the benefits of moving away. And this paper does a really nice job, I think, of showing just how difficult that can be for young people. Yeah, I'm interested in how they chose which towns they would be focusing on, because um, one thing that strikes me about the discourse around coastal towns is that it is, well, coastal towns are a pretty heterogeneous group, to be honest. Mm. I mean, if you compare, like, Brighton to Gosport, they are, they're night and day, other than both being next to the sea. One's got a booming tourist industry in this large city, the other is a mainly residential area with a sort of decaying high street. So how did they choose the examples? Were they looking for specific coastal towns with the kind of archetypal problems of coastal towns like seasonal industry, or did they mm. go for the full spread? So that's a really good point, and it's partly why I was always a, a bit sceptical, and many others were a bit sceptical of this kind of coastal towns discourse, because... I think I think actually in the area typologies that I tend to use, for instance, coastal towns is it's not there's not a category of coastal towns because it's not actually necessarily a very meaningful group. Mm. As you said, it's very it's very mixed bag. One of the main ways I find a bit odd about this paper actually is that they they reference some work that was done a couple of years ago. Actually, in the, the field of tourism research, so it just goes to show how interdisciplinary these mm. these projects can be. But some authors put together a typology of coastal towns and they found that the vast majority were in the kind of essentially there's kind of four 
four types, but there is a real distinction between there's one type that's quite ethnically diverse and with much younger populations and other types where their population is actually much older and tends to be a much higher proportion of white British residents. Mm-hmm. And there, there are really important distinctions between the two. And actually, like you just said, if you travel relatively short distance along the south coast where we live, you can see both types of town and they're very different contexts to grow up in. I don't know. I, I, I didn't get a strong sense from this paper of how they chose this particular area and why and whether they drew on that typology because I think typologies like that are quite quite useful devices when you're doing a research project and saying okay we want to look at coastal towns but let's see off the shelf has someone tried to distinguish between different types of coastal contexts and which one are we most interested in and I, I didn't get a very strong sense of that from this paper. Yeah. So the author did note that what unites much of the public discourse around coastal towns was broad narratives of decline and loss. Why do you think that is? Do you think that reflects the actual reality of coastal towns? I'm kind of resorting to my own anecdotal knowledge of, of coastal life now, which as for me has only been like a fraction of, of my life. I didn't grow up in a coastal place. But I think for, for any coastal town that's had kind of tourism as even a, just a share of its economy which goes for most of them they have seen huge transformations and big kind of ruptures in the way their economies have worked over the last hundred years so most coastal towns will have this general pattern of having risen to a heyday um, in the late victorian times you know arrival of the railways and things like this transporting vast numbers of holidaymakers that all crashes and burns in the 50s and 60s when people start getting on airplanes and going further abroad and since then they've kind of had various fortunes in terms of rebuilding around a different model so some coastal towns have rebuilt themselves around tourism others have gone off in very different directions you know built their economies around around something else because they're no longer able to attract tourists others haven't really managed to rebuild so that's just off that's just kind of from kind of local knowledge of, of living in a coastal place um, and that seems to me to be something that is quite a common theme but it hasn't meant the same thing like not all coastal towns have declined in the same way and they haven't all lost the same thing and some of them have kind of have gained as a result and others haven't haven't really ever really gone back to the way that they were before um, and obviously if you're a young person growing up in these places that that can have a really big impact on your fortunes it means something very different growing up say in, in Brighton as opposed to growing up in Littlehampton you're going to face a very different opportunity structure yeah absolutely it seems like that kind of discourse around loss has the potential to be used as a justification for coastal towns within reach of large cities to be the next sort of victims of gentrification what what's your thoughts on that do you think they're likely to be gentrified what do you think the consequences will be one thing that i find really interesting about discourses around loss in places like coastal towns is that often it's, it's a discourse that comes from the older generations who've lived through that loss and it's not hard to see why they might feel a sense of loss. But what's interesting is that young people often take on that discourse despite not having lived through it. And I think it's part of what's interesting about talking to young people about place, which is like how they talk about the spaces they live in, the neighbourhoods they live in, how they understand them and interpret them and, and use them, is that they don't, it's not just a case of them figuring that out for themselves and creating an identity all of their own. They're they're often very, very aware of how older people talk about a place and they inevitably absorb some of that language and that discourse. You know, 
people who've examined the kind of the failing schools discourse often find the same thing young people who who start at a school that's kind of branded as failing take on that discourse and before long they're just they're aware and all their interactions with that school the way they talk about themselves as a learner often take on the facets of being somewhere that's that's failing even if they don't particularly want that to be the discourse that they have so it's so that's um i haven't expressed that particularly clearly but i find that interesting there's kind of an integration intergenerational element here i think one issue is that so we know from survey research that the current generation of young people kind of broadly construed you know to like the the population of kids here at secondary school they individualize a lot of the issues they see around them in society or they're more likely to individualize them than the generations who came before that's a really interesting feature of contemporary youth in the uk Mm. Uh, it has lots of different impacts but one uh, a kind of a relevant impact here is that when they grow up somewhere that's been essentially branded, say, in the media as as failing, rundown, loss, decline, they really internalise that and they essentially kind of feel like they're part of the problem, mm. even though they're, they're really not. In fact, they're <laughs> probably the best hope for a solution or for, for, for change. So we know that that's actually a really, it's kind of the, almost like one of the paradoxes of youth at the moment is that young people kind of saddle themselves with this burden of, of what they see around them but that's important in practical terms because it means that if we describe areas in these ways it can essentially really weigh young people down for some young people it's also a real imperative to move on like don't get me wrong I've, I've spoken to young people in areas that are openly described by local residents as you know shitholes that the kind of the kind of way that people jovially refer to where they grow up and I've often spoken about where I, I grew up but that that can be an incentive to kind of get on and get out sometimes and young people do perfectly well as a result but it can be really problematic and in terms of gentrification in my mind that loops us back to when we were talking about kind of wider economic forces before I think there's kind of a sweet spot in the middle I think for local areas of introducing new people to an area because they will bring something new like areas inevitably change over time and there can be something really wonderful about that and it can bring really positive really positive things I think you know that goes for any form of migration in general really I think when it's when it happens well and when it's fostered it can be a really a really like positive human force but um too often it's not managed particularly well or it results from gross inequality so you do end up with people moving in with big budgets for housing for instance and pricing out local people who actually kind of want to stay and and make a place for themselves that's clearly quite problematic and coastal towns i think you're right are one of the the current frontiers where that's really happening in the uk like people moving out from london coastal towns in the southeast are uh, ripe for the picking and um, in terms of people with london salaries by either buying their own home or buying a second home and that can be that can be really problematic and the young people they spoke to in this paper were really aware of that actually mm. it's interesting that you mentioned with the young people they spoke to that they commonly identified their town as somehow failing and identified with it and I do wonder if that highlights a sense of community which still exists I mean I'm sure no one speaks about their town as a failing town in in fond terms but it does highlight concern for their town Mm. and I wonder Mm. if with some reinvestment in public services infrastructure etc social housing might a sense of wanting to stay be fostered I think what I'm saying is that there's clearly a quite there's clearly quite a strong identity attached to being Mm. from a coastal town Definitely. And I, 
And I, I found the same in my, my own research in Manchester and I've read about it elsewhere as well, this idea that when people people talk about decline or the frustrations of living somewhere because it's not actually a very nice place to live, at face value it's a kind of a form of distaste or displeasure with somewhere but actually it comes from a form of attachment, like they want it to be better, they often desperately just wish it was just a slightly better place to live or it's a great place to live but the drug problem is awful and that makes it unbearable, you know, there's, yeah. there's sometimes very specific elements of their town that they, they just wish it had. And, you know, leaping back to the previous piece, sometimes it's just about a slightly more diverse you know local labor market or it, it can be really frustrating for instance for being a young person who just finished education at the age of 18 with some really good skills in digital media but there's just literally nothing within 20 miles in terms of you know the first step in your career and that's really frustrating it might be a, a wonderful areas in uh, area to live in other respects but if, if there is literally nothing that you can do with the qualifications you've worked really hard for that's deeply frustrating and I think it can ultimately when it leads to young people moving away when they didn't really want to that's not a success story in my mind fascinating stuff well thank you very much for your time on this podcast Sam it's been a pleasure to speak to you as always you too Phil thank you if you enjoyed listening to this podcast and want to hear more please leave us a review and subscribe via iTunes or RSS if you know someone who'd be interested in this episode, don't be afraid to share it and feel free to contact us via the links in the show notes. See you next time.